0: So for those of you who are uh, new or haven't been around for a while, we're in the middle of a series, or the second part of a series, on vineyard values. And this is the second vineyard value, which is Experiencing experiencing God. We've begun to look at this uh, vineyard value. And if you remember, last week I added a couple of subtitles to try to emphasize the depth of the topic experiencing God. Uh, Those included both worshiping God and intimacy with God. And if we were to state this as a continuing stream of thought, it would be this. Experiencing God through the worship of God brings us into intimacy with God. Experiencing God through the worship of God brings us into intimacy with God. Now, you might say, well, duh, <laughs> right? And we all know that, Pastor. But if you don't intentionally approach a worship service with that thought in mind, you know, got a little axiom I like to use, knowledge without action, you know, it's fruitless. So this is such an important spiritual dynamic and I I fear that we miss so much of what God desires for us because we do not intentionally pursue this level of intimate interaction with the Lord every time, every time we gather together as the body of Christ. You know, we only get together a couple of times a week and out of the, the scheme of things, you know, it isn't a whole lot a whole lot of time to worship the Lord, to connect with him, to be intimate with him. And uh, if you just kind of keep it in the forefront of your mind, um, you know, when Eric opens the worship service, you know, we're going to worship the Lord for a while. And uh, what an important statement he's making at that moment of time. It isn't just, well, we're going to begin the service now. That really isn't the invitation he's extending. He's saying, you know, god is willing to open the windows of heaven and connect with you at this moment of time if you'll enter into worship listen to this dialogue between moses and the lord in exodus 33 moses said to the lord see you say to me bring up this people but you have not let me know whom you will send with me yet you've said i know you by name and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me your ways, that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. And the Lord said to him, he said, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And then Moses said to him, If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us, so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, This very thing that you have spoken I will do. For you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses said, Please, show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy to whom I will show mercy. But he said, You cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock, and while my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. If your presence does not go with me, do not bring us up from here. There is a distinctiveness, a certain discernible quality in being a people, a community of, or a person, an individual of the presence. If you look at the dialogue between Moses and God, Moses makes a claim of distinctiveness as the reason for the Lord to be present with them. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight? I and your people, is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? It is in fact his presence that makes us truly unique as a people. Even in our religious systems and theological understanding, the fact is that it is not that we are Christians or claim to be saved or born again. No, if you look at church history, it is when the manifest presence of God is active within the church that the church rises above all other belief systems to transform and impact the world. Since Christianity was a dead religion for centuries, it's the presence, not the belief. We must be people of the presence, a people who seek his presence, proclaim his presence, and practice his presence because we will find joy in his presence. Psalm 1611 says this, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. How many like being happy? (laughs) All right. Have you ever been full of joy? Have you ever known the fullness of joy? Hmm. It's only one place that's found. You can have a good day. You can have a happy time. You can go to a great party, you know, a good cookout, barbecue. You can have a lot of fun. But if you want to know the fullness of joy, it's only found one place, and that's in the presence of God. And every week, every Sunday when we gather together and Eric makes the invitation, would you stand with me and worship the Lord? You have an opportunity to step into the one place where true joy can be found, and that's in his presence. That joy becomes our strength. According to Nehemiah 8.10, it says, Do not be grieved. For the joy of the Lord is your strength. The joy of the Lord is your strength. The joy of God is so unique that it doesn't just make you happy. It makes you strong. you ever felt defeated? Most people who are defeated say, oh, I'm so depressed. you ever notice that? They go together. Well, with joy... Joy gives strength. Joy gives you what you need. We find power in his presence because we find joy and strength in his presence. Kingdom power that heals the sick, casts out demons, opens blind eyes and deaf ears. Power to proclaim with all authority the gospel of grace, a gospel of liberty, of setting captives free. Unless we as a community of believers function from ongoing and active encounters with his presence, then we are simply doing religion, a form of godliness that lacks the demonstration of the age to come. Unless our hospitable hearts and welcoming spirits are a direct reflection of his presence in us then as nice as we may be, we will never fully impact the lives of the lost and draw them into an ongoing love relationship with Jesus Christ. We must be people of his presence. Lord, if your presence doesn't go with us, don't let us go anywhere. Consider this. The highest price we pay for sin for religious activity rather than spiritual intimacy, or for a lack of spiritual hunger, is the loss of his presence. What we call conviction is the inner realization that we have been or are being separated from the presence of God by our own choices. Somehow, the enemy of our soul has convinced us That if we get too close to God's presence, we will be exposed in his light. And if exposed, we will be condemned and shamed by his presence. Nothing could be further from the truth. There is not one biblical instance, not one where an individual encounters the manifest presence of Jesus and they are not lifted up to a higher sense of their own self-worth and value. Jesus would not allow the religious elite of his day to condemn the women caught in how they term it, the very act of adultery, immediate death sentence, Rather, he raised her up and set her free to go and sin no more. Mary Magdalene, who Jesus cast seven demons out of, was not left with the stigma of having needed deliverance, but rather was so highly valued by Jesus that after the resurrection, he charged her with the mission of the very first proclamation of the good news, he has risen. Tax collectors, lepers, drunkards, beggars, all found their true identity and life empowerment through encountering and experiencing his presence. And I pray right now that if any are of us here are trapped in fear of exposure, alive from the pit of hell, that you, O Holy Spirit, would bring the truth to our hearts and minds and that we would find ourselves walking in his presence and power as a grace and freedom rather than striving to achieve what he has already freely given us. Let this truth sink into your mind. In all religions, man is seeking after God. Trying to please or appease him or to prove oneself worthy of acceptance by that God. But in Jesus, He is seeking us. For He came to seek and to save those who are lost. In John fifteen, sixteen he says, You did not choose me. And we, we use this language all the time. Oh, I came to Christ, I found Christ. Jesus is saying just the off. No, you didn't. I found you. I came looking for you. I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give it to you. I mentioned these following scriptures in this interaction last week, but I think it deserves repeating. In Genesis 3.8, Adam and Eve had uh, been tempted and fallen into sin, and they were hiding in the bushes, trying to cover themselves, and lost in fear and shame. And it says, and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? Do you think the all-seeing God couldn't find Adam? Think he didn't know exactly what bush he was behind, what fig, tree, fig leaf he had plucked off to try to cover himself? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. Think about this. I mean, really think about this dynamic of the all-knowing, all-seeing, all-powerful creator God looking for us, calling for us choosing us and searching for our whereabouts in this shame-filled and fearful world of sin-based living. This is so powerful that Jesus addresses it in the form of a parable, the story of the prodigal son. But the story really isn't about the son as much as it is about the father and the father's response to the sin of his son, the father's response to our junk, Look at the context that the parable emerges out of first in Luke 15.1. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to Jesus. And the Pharisees, the religious elite of his days, and the scribes grumbled saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. So in response to that comment, he told them a parable. There was a man who had two sons. I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and he came to his father, but while he was still a long way off. What does that say to you? Where was the father positioning himself? While he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Never mind that stuff. Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fat and calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to celebrate. They began to strengthen the son by the joy of the father. The son, separated from his father, squanders his wealth his dignity and his moral parameters of godly living, and finds himself in the worst imaginable condition, the consequences of separation from God. As our Heavenly Father, uh, clearly evidenced by human history, they have been devastating from the very beginning. Listen to Genesis 4.13. Cain had killed his brother, and the Lord confronts him and punishes him. And Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. And then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord. Cain went away from the presence of the Lord from the beginning that has been the consequence of sin. But this is the prodigal behavior Jesus was trying to show us. I don't think so. I don't think it was that. I don't think it was punishment. I don't think it was loss of wealth or squandering property. So let's look at the definition of prodigal from the World English Dictionary. Prodigal means recklessly wasteful. The son was certainly that, right? But the other side of the coin It also means extravagant, and the father was that. It means, as in disposing of goods or money, lavish in giving. The father was that also, or yielding. A person who spends lavishly or squanders money. The son was one, the father was the other. Certainly, this definition is very descriptive of the behavior of the son who squandered all his inheritance. But there's another prodigal in the story, a father who is willing and, could I say, even excited to to squander his grace, to be recklessly wasteful with his love and to be lavishly giving in his acceptance. Please note that the father doesn't even acknowledge his son's practice repentance speech. He doesn't insist on hearing a sinner's prayer or a listing of all that he has done wrong. He is so full of joy that his son is in his presence that he becomes prodigal in his restoration of the relationship. He loves his son more than he hates what his son had done. That's prodigal living. Might I say that I think Jesus was painting a word picture of our Father in heaven. He is looking and longing for us to come into his presence so that he can lavish his love on us. And the prodigal heart of God is demonstrated through the opportunity presented to us through Jesus Christ and his death, burial, and resurrection to recover what was lost, to reconcile us to God, and to restore our ability to stand in the presence of a holy God is so far-reaching in its impact on humanity as to be absolutely above and beyond all that we could ever hope or or imagine to be possible. It is absolutely prodigal of what God has done. Because we will never comprehend the full height, depth, width, and breadth of the love of God shown to us through his redemptive process. And what he has redeemed us to in, in the simplest terms is this. His presence. His presence. The one thing that was lost at Eden is found again through Christ access to the presence of God. The pursuit of and the hunger for his presence should be in the forefront of all of our spiritual activities and works of ministry. If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. Let's pray. So Holy Spirit, we stand upon this rock this firm foundation of the love and the work of Jesus Christ. Lord, we ask you to set us in the cleft of the rock, firmly embedded in the heart of Jesus Christ. Lord, you opened up his side, that he might pour out his blood, that we would have bold access to your presence. And so, O God, I pray that today you would let all of your goodness pass before your people. Lord, as we have come and we have worshipped you, we have praised you, Lord, we have expressed our hearts to you, we have delved into your work, we have examined, O God, your lavish love. And so we say, come, Holy Spirit, pour out your goodness upon your people. Come with us, O God. Be with us. Let us be a people of your presence that the world would see we've been with Jesus. And in finding us, you would find them, O God. Come, Holy Spirit.